we weren't sure if we were going to be having fans blowing this morning, and so I'm wearing this headset experimentally to see if that might help. I, I noticed last week that we had the Sweden melodic sounds of the fans. It sound, sounded something like a biplane flying through the sanctuary. Um, but hopefully you can hear adequately. We don't have the fans running, but uh, all is well. Brethren, uh, why the series? I, I know I've explained this before, but I just want to remind you why we're going through the series of Sovereign Grace Bible Church. Really, I think it's important to understand that in the process of going through this series, we're laying down very important and crucial foundation stones for our understanding of, of who we are and what our ministry is to be. And honestly, as I preach through this series, I learn a lot about you all because I'll preach a sermon and then I'll have the privilege of talking to individuals. And in the process of all this, I'm learning. I'm learning about where I am here and what my ministry is in this body. And also I would say this, that a part of what I'm learning, have been learning and continue to learn is about some, some of the aspects of the church's past and its present station and ministry. And this is crucial for my understanding, again, what my ministry is here right now. It's helping me to understand, again, where the church has been and where it is at present. But we never use the past or even the present experiences of a church to determine its future. The course that any church needs to seek out and set is one that is governed and determined by God's Word alone. And that's why we're going through this series. In fact, even last day, think about some of the primitive lessons we've been covering. Last Lord's Day, we talked about the basic building blocks of the early church. We talked about how it is that as the early church in Jerusalem assembled, they were committed to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, that is such a foundational key idea that it, it's, again, it has to be part and parcel of our study because if you don't have those basic essential elements, you don't really have a church, not a functioning one anyway. You might have an, a group that's committed to a lot of activities and programs, but if you don't have those foundations, you don't really have the essence of the ministry of the local church. So all this to say, I, I want to thank you for your patience in many respects. I've had people ask me about what the future will be for um, various aspects of the life and ministry of the church. Just know and understand that as I work with the elders, this is the big question that I'm trying to resolve and understand. I'm, I'm wanting to be patient and careful and prayerful uh, and thoughtful and mindful of all the choices that we're making and and again, this whole process of going through this series is a part of my own tutorial in learning about, again, where the church has been, where it is at present, and where we're going in the future. Thus far, we began with a discussion about the sovereignty of God. This is crucial. I think this is one of the biggest 
building blocks, foundation stones that we had to start with to talk about the sovereignty of God. By saying that God is sovereign, we're confessing that he's in charge of everything. He bears all authority, all power, all dominion, and there are no exceptions to that reality. The word grace in the name Sovereign Grace Bible Church brings to bear and brings to mind the fact that we're saved by God's sovereign grace. It's not something that we merited. It's not something that we earned by anything that we ever said or did. But God saves his people according to his own mercy and love and compassion. And that's it. That's why all boasting goes to him, not to ourselves. The words Bible and church, as we're in the throes in the midst of going through these terms, are indeed crucial as well. We invested a few weeks already talking about the importance of the Bible. And thus far, we began really talking about the Word of God and how it is important and crucial by looking at the very prayer that our Savior offered up on our behalf in John chapter 17. Remember, he prayed that that we would be sanctified in truth. He says, thy word is truth. And so last time we talked about, or or a few weeks ago, we talked about the purity of the word, and we talked about how it is that God purifies, cleanses his people with a word that is indeed perfect and pure. Again, this is a very foundational and crucial idea. And so this is why we took the time starting with this very concept. David says that the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. And James says that the wisdom from above is what? First, of all the things that we can say about the wisdom of God, it is first of all pure, without corruption, without error. And when Paul talks about how it is that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, the water, the instrument of the word, likened as water, is indeed a reference to the purity of the word. You don't take a shower in polluted, dirty water, do you? You you take a shower with clean water. That's how you get clean. Well, that's the very imagery that we have here. Christ's bride is cleansed with the pure waters of God's Word. Then last time, last week, we talked about the unifying power of the Word. We went to Ephesians chapter 4, where we were reminded of the fact that it is God who creates unity. We don't create unity. God does. This is a very foundational idea. This is what Paul establishes when he says that there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God creates unity, but we're called to preserve the unity of the church. And that's a labor that we must be engaged in constantly. So he says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In fact, the very word irony speaks to the idea of bringing various units and pieces together like a puzzle into a coherent, unified, assembled whole. That's what we're called to do. That takes work. 
You don't put a puzzle together by just shaking it up in the box and then throwing it out and then it lands on the floor assembled. I've never seen that. It takes work. And remember, when he calls us to preserve the unity of the body of Christ, that word tereo speaks of the idea of a soldier guarding a citadel. This is the thing that we have to guard. We have to guard unity. Because the reality is, is that it doesn't take much effort at all to destroy unity. But it does take a lot of work to preserve it. And that's what we're called to do. But without such preservation of unity by means of the Word of God, what do you end up with? Well, as we talked about last Lord's Day, you end up with the personality divisions that we find at Corinth. Or you find licentious teachers who creep in unnoticed, as in the case of Jude. Or at Colossae, many were being taken captive by empty philosophy. At Galatia, they were being hoodwinked by a false gospel, accepting the idea that somehow our salvation and sanctification can be completed by means of Christ plus our works. You know, it makes me think of the period of Judges. One of the most disgusting and disturbing moments in human history, one of the darkest periods of human history, was that period of time in the period of Judges where men did what was right in their own eyes. You get a bunch of people together who just say, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. According to my own standard, according to my own opinions, if you get a bunch of human beings, sinful human beings, who are committed to that principle, you have nothing but disunity and destruction. That's why we need the Word of God because it mortifies our sinfulness and our individuality, and it enables us to be conformed to the holiness of our Savior, reflecting the very unity that we see in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are perfectly unified in all ways. In many respects, we could say of our own society that it is like the period of the judges, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. But the church must never become like the world. And that's why we must be committed to this idea of preserving the unity of the body of Christ. And that takes work. Well, that then brings us to our next installment of our study regarding the importance and the power and the sufficiency of God's Word. The power and sufficiency of God's Word. This morning, I'm just really going to go through two main principles, and then I'm going to offer some exhortations and implications of what we see in the Word. The first thing I want us to do is to consider the power of God's Word in combating evil. The power of God's word in combating evil. We're in, the battle, we're in the middle of a battle, and we have to understand that in this battle, we've got to use the right tools. And the right tools that we have have been given to us by God, and it's called the full armor of God. We'll talk a little bit about that here this morning. But we need these tools of battle because we do face a world full of evil. But God's Word has power in combating evil. The second thing we're going to consider is the power of God's Word over the human heart and mind. 
God's word triumphs over anything and everything that is ever produced by the human heart and mind. Now, this is related to the first point, but it's really more of a particular focus that we need to consider here this morning because Scripture emphasizes both of these points, both the broader aspect of our combating evil in this world and the more particular reality of the fact that God is very interested in demonstrating His supremacy over mankind and all that He can produce via His heart and mind. And so we'll be looking at that in just a moment. But let's go to this first point and consider the power of God's Word in combating evil. And I want to direct your attention once again to our Savior's prayer for us, for His people, in John chapter 17. Look with me at verse 15, if you would, if you would turn to that text. Every time I read this, I am struck encouraged and convicted by what is before me. Because consider what our Savior says in this prayer. He says to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And then he says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. I'm going to connect those ideas in just a moment here. But contemplate this idea with me. How many times have you just wished you could just vanish from this planet and just go home? There have been many times when I've just thought, Lord, just take me. At one level, our desire to be with God and and be with our Savior in His heavenly kingdom, that's not a bad thing, but, but mark this, we need to be careful not to give up because He's called us to be here. He's called us to this battle, and we're not to have a spirit and attitude of escapism. That's just wrong. We're here for a purpose. We're here for a reason. And so when Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, he then says this, but to keep them from the evil one. There's that word again, tereo. Keep them, guard them, preserve them, protect them. In the midst of this darkness, this evil, this onslaught of wickedness, protect them. Brethren, do not lose sight of the fact that our God protects us. Whatever we face in this life, we must never lose sight of the fact that our Lord protects his people. And he perseveres us. In fact, the very sentiment that we see in verse 15 is reflected in verse 12. When Jesus said of his protection of his disciples, he says, While I was with them, I was, here again, the word tereo, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. There was no surprise to the Lord that Judas departed. He never was one of the 12, truly, because he never was a disciple and believer in Jesus Christ. But our Savior kept and guarded the rest. This is what our Lord does. He keeps 
protects and guards his people. And he sanctifies us by means of his truth. That's the tie and connection between his petition to the Father that we would be kept from the evil one. By the way, have you noticed, I'm not here to preach John 17, 15, but it's awfully tempting to do so. Have you noticed what's in the text there? He doesn't say keep the evil one from them. Give them a life where they don't have any kind of challenges or trials and they just kind of walk on into heaven without ever stumbling or, or stubbing their toe. That's not the petition. It's not keep the devil from them. It's keep them from the evil one. Redirect them, their steps away from the course of this world, away from the darkness of this generation. And how does God do that? He sanctifies us in his truth and keeps us on his narrow pathway. Brethren, this is a call, this is a prayer from our Savior that reminds us of the fact that we are in the middle of a battle. Soldiers are not called to flee from the scene for their own safety. They're called to remain in the battlefield knowing that they're there for a reason. And this very sentiment and idea is so reflective of what Paul says, and this is the next text I want to bring you to. And yes, we're, I don't really do topical preaching, but in this series, I am going topically through these words, Sovereign Grace Bible Church. But let me take you to another text that is really a corollary idea to this idea of Jesus petitioning that we remain here to go on in the battle of this life. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 10, where Paul issues his finale to the epistle, where he says, finally, in other words, here's the summation and conclusion of everything he teaches in this epistle. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, he then says again in verse 14, stand firm. Three times he tells us to stand firm. You know what, brethren? When the Lord repeats himself like this, it means we need to stop and think about what reason he's repeating himself. Three times he tells us to stand firm. This word, histemi, from which the word is derived, is really a, it was really a very common military call, a common military expression that brings to mind the idea of a phalanx of soldiers, which is really just a rectangular formation of soldiers who would march into battle such that you basically would have this, by the appearance of it, an impenetrable wall of soldiers who were all armed with helmets, shields, and swords, and you as the enemy had to face that, that phalanx of soldiers. And what was crucial in that organized phalanx is that every soldier would remain in line and not break ranks. 
When I was in uh, the military, I, was, I went from basic training to technical school, and somebody decided that it was a good idea to make me uh, the uh, one who would take our class of 25 or so students, and I had to organize them <clears throat> into a phalanx uh, uh, structure, and I had to call cadence and have them march to and from class. I got to tell you something. This is kind of an interesting thing to do. You get a whole bunch of people together, and you're supposed to get them to all march in sequence, in step, and you need to do the whole thing because you have other uh, officers who are watching you, and they're going to make sure that you're doing this thing right. And so I'd call cadence and so forth. It was amazing to me. It took a lot of hard work and practice to get this group of people to march in step. It is just difficult no matter what because everybody's got to be in sync. What was amazing to me was it didn't take much to ruin that formation. It's a beautiful thing when it's marching as it's supposed to be, and everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. It looks wonderful, but if you get one person who's just stepping out of line or they're stumbling or tripping or who knows what, doing their own thing, that whole thing just starts to break apart. And it's like a ripple effect. You see the first person stumbling and falling and so forth, and then the people around them, they're trying not to trip on the guy in front of him and so forth. It's really a powerful illustration of what the body of Christ is called to do. We're called to stand firm, unified as the soldiers of Christ. And we're to do so in the unity that is consistent with Christ himself. And so these expressions, stand firm or hold the line, these were the calls that were given to soldiers who might be tempted to flee from their position for, safe, for safety or charge into battle apart from their fellow soldiers. It was a very crucial concept. Again, those who broke ranks actually put everybody else at risk. And as a phalanx, as the people of God, as the assembled soldiers of the body of Christ, we're to take up the full armor of God because as we are joined together and are unified together, we have to be able to march forward with the armament that we need in order to engage the enemy. And Paul helps us to understand that we have what we need. And so he enjoins us to gird our loins with truth. Verse 14, he enjoins us to take up the breastplate of righteousness that our feet are to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We're to take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I would agree with Bunyan and other Puritans who saw all prayer as being the other component to this armament that we possess. Because all this armament is very important and very key, but brethren, unless we're on our knees praying to God for His strength, and by the way, that's the context of what he instructs us to do. He enjoins us to be strong in the strength of his might, right? So all prayer is a part of that. That's the battle strategy. Isn't it interesting that all these pieces of armor, that of all these pieces of armor, we have three that relate to the idea of God's truth, God's word, there's what I call the belt of truth. He says, girding your loins with truth. There's the gospel of peace. And then, then there's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
In each case, we find that the Word of God is central to the Christian's battle against the forces of darkness in this world. Number one, the belt of truth. When he says, gird your loins with truth, that really depicts the, the, sol the soldier's belt whereby they would take their tunic, wrap it up, gird their loins, wrap it around their waist, and then take that belt and take all that, the gathering of the material together and tie it together with the belt. Imagine if you didn't have that belt. A soldier who didn't have that belt was not able to gird his loins, and so he had this floppy garment otherwise, and there's no way he would be able to engage in battle wearing that. The gospel of peace, which is characterized by this idea of having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, it's the idea of taking the leather straps that you would wrap around your foot, and you had to prepare this. You know, we put our shoes on in the morning. We don't think anything of it. It's just a single piece of leather or whatever, and we got our shoes on. But for you to go into battle, you had to take all the straps of leather, and you had to prepare and wrap and tie those things together before you went anywhere. And what we are adorned with is the gospel of peace. And it is the gospel of peace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, by which we march and advance in this world of darkness. And it is a reminder to us of the fact that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle in which we minister the gospel to others. And then we come to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as he says, here the word makaira, unlike the longer sword, the, the romphia, which was more like a saber, the makaira was a small dagger, basically. But its size doesn't really matter because Paul reminds us of the fact that this is the sword of the what? Of the spirit. And so it has the power and the capacity to lay open the human soul to expose the thoughts and the intentions of the human heart. And this is the very work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that when he would depart, the, the, the helper, the Spirit of God would come. And he says, and when he comes, he will convict or expose or bring to shame the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit of God uses the Word to bring such conviction to the human heart. Brethren, I, I would just say to you, this is such an important idea, and I confess to you that I forget this principle sometimes. In fact, it's a very low moment when I forget this principle. When I'm talking to another individual and I'm sharing the gospel with them, I have to remember, we all need to remember, that we bear this powerful weapon called the Word of God, and that it is the Spirit of God who brings forth the power of that Word to the human heart, bringing conviction and exposing the individual's need for Christ. It's not up to our cleverness and craftiness, and we can't manipulate people into the kingdom of heaven, but we rely upon the powerful weaponry that God has given to us. belt of truth, the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All of this we have. And as for the sword of the Spirit, keep in mind the following. 
This idea of being instructed to take up the sword bears the idea of our having authority and license to carry this weapon and use it. Think about that for a second. We are called to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and this denotes the idea of the license to bear arms spiritually and to use this. In the real world, we speak of governing authorities. Paul speaks of governing authorities as having the right and license to bear arms. Why? In order to bring wrath upon those who practice evil. Well, that's the ideal situation. When you have governments that are committed to doing evil, they won't do that. But in the best of all situations, that's what they're supposed to do. As for God's authority and the authority of his word to bring conviction to the human heart, the Lord says to Ephraim, Ephraim and Judah in Hosea 6.5, he says, Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. This is God's authority to bring conviction to the human heart. And even in the book of Revelation, we see time and again, five times we see the sword of his mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ Particularly in Revelation 19.15, it says that Christ is mounted on a white horse with a two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. The very word of Christ is indeed the sword, which is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul says, take this up. This sword, you have a right and authority to take up and bear. Go use it. Go use it. This is authority that is not our own. It is not derived from us. It is derived from the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed us and made us his soldiers so that we would bear this authority on his behalf. When Jesus enjoins the church to go and make disciples of the nations, saying, teaching them to observe all that I command you, remember that the premise of that command is established when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. You bear this authority because of me. And so take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Brethren, all this reminds us of the fact that we are indeed at war. There's no sense in which we can make this pretty or soften the blow of what the reality is. The reality is, is that we are at war. It can be intimidating when we think about it, but we have to keep our eyes on the perfection and sufficiency of our God who has supplied us with what we need for this battle. We need real armor, and the good news is we have it. God has given it to us, and, it has been, it is, and, and this armor has been established by divine omnipotence. And we have to remember that. Every time we speak to another soul about their need for Christ, we need to remember these things. We do not stand alone, but it is the Spirit of God who uses His Word to bring conviction, as we cannot do. I can't bring conviction to the human heart. I'm just an instrument. But it is God who opens the heart and the eyes and the ears. 
And this brings us then to the second point. And this is why I don't like headsets. What's that? Why don't you try it? We're gonna we're gonna try this. Can you hear me? Okay. All right. This brings us to our second point. The power of God's word over the human heart and mind. And again, this is related to the first point. But it is a more particular consideration of the fact that, yeah, we're at war and we are on this battlefield of darkness. But at the end of the day, we have to keep in mind as we talk to individuals and we look them in the eyes and engage them, we have to keep in mind some very important principles that are brought to us in the scriptures. First of all, consider the fact that God has and demonstrates power over the human heart. We're all here as evidence of the fact that God has power over the human heart. He can melt any heart of stone, no matter how hardened it is in sin. Oh, it's easy to say that. But man alive, we we sometimes fall short of understanding that. When the Lord first saved me, I must say parenthetically, when the Lord first saved me, I, I remember having a, there was a man who was across the, the room from me. We were in a barracks that were like an apartment complex. And there was this young man who I knew, and he worked in the same clinic that I did, and he was a very hardened sinner. And I remember thinking to myself, as much as I engaged him and talked to him and spoke to him about Christ. He kept refusing and refusing and refusing. And I got to a point where I just thought, you know, this guy, I I almost, I gave up hope. And I had no license to do that. So one morning at three o'clock in the morning, he raps on my door and he says, Michael, I came to Christ. I was filled with joy and I was just, burdened by the fact that I had given up hope. I was rebuked at the same time. We have no business, no license ever to give up hope on any sinner. If God had the power to melt your heart, he has the power to melt any heart, no matter how hardened it is in sin. Brethren, how many times have you read the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, and have struggled with the darkness and despair that is presented in that chapter, especially as Paul describes the reality of the human heart? He says that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then he goes on. 
Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You know, every time I get, get up to that point, I just think to myself, okay, I get the point. But he presses on. And he says, and just as they did not see fit to, fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, evil, greed, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only practice, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's exhausting. You know, societies and churches that tolerate and approve and even promote such evil in this world, they're, they're part of the problem. Those who give hearty approval to these practices, those who participate in that way, it's all a part of the cauldron of evil. You know, Paul wasn't just describing his generation, he's describing ours. And he's really describing every generation of humanity since the fall. There have been ebbs and flows of such wickedness, to be sure. But at the end of the day, mankind doesn't really change in his nature. Technology changes, but humanity doesn't. All this can be quite overwhelming. Did you notice that The Assistant Secretary for Health, Rachel Levine, announced that in the month of June that it wasn't just Pride Month, but that it's going to go ahead and be Pride Summer. Let's just keep this thing rolling. Pride Summer, he suggested. By the way, that's a bit of a ruse. Pride Month, they don't just have a month. They've got all year. Just pick up any, anything that you buy in the store, turn on the TV. It's everywhere all the time, 24-7. That's the reality. It's not a month. But it's Romans 1, over and over and over again. The weight of despair and darkness that we see in Romans 1, it could be too much. We oftentimes face the question and struggle with the question, well, how do I face the onslaught of evil and darkness in this world? Let me take you back to verse 18 of this text. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That word for is there for a reason. Because verse 18 is, is 
verse 18 is explaining something that precedes that text. And what is it explaining? It's explaining Paul's eagerness and boldness in proclaiming the gospel. If you go back to verse 15, he talks about how it is that he was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And then he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Paul was not ashamed, nor was he intimidated by the reality of the darkness of this world because he knew that he possessed and proclaimed the gospel, which is, in fact, the very power of God. Brethren, we must have this same attitude. If we don't, we will be timid. If we don't, we'll be fearful. If we don't, we'll be tempted to shrink back against this world itself. We have to remember that we possess the full armor of God and that God can melt the heart of stone no matter how hardened it is. With men, salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. We must not lose sight of this. We also see that God's word has power and God demonstrates his power over the human mind and all that it can produce. When we study the word of God, when we go to the scriptures, we see that God's word, God's power, God's wisdom is always infinitely superior to the best that human imagination can produce, the best that human wisdom can produce. For this, let me ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17. And again, we're just summarizing these texts. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. After refuting the personality divisions that found at Corinth, Paul says this, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here we go again. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now I'll get to that in just a moment. But when he says this, that he came or that he was sent by Christ not to baptize, that wasn't his focus, but to preach the gospel. And he says, not in Sophia. My translation has cleverness of speech. You have to keep in mind that when he talks about Sophia, and the reason why the translators translate that as cleverness of speech, we're talking about the wisdom of man. We're talking about the best that the human mind can produce. 
We're talking about the manner in which the Greeks worshipped this idea of their having wisdom that was superior and that was authoritative. We use the word philosophy without really thinking about what were we even saying. Philos Sophia. It is the love of Sophia. The Greeks loved their Sophia, their wisdom, their machinations of their own mind, their own invented ideas, their reasoning. But God promises this concerning man and his love for his own wisdom. God says, and Paul is quoting Isaiah 20, 29 and verse 14 when he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Brethren, there are many reasons why God reveals his word. He does so in order to reveal his glory and supremacy. He calls sinners to himself by it. He sanctifies his people. But he also judges and condemns the wicked as they try to lift up and raise up their own worldly wisdom against him. And it's for this reason that God promises to judge and condemn the wicked in view of their self-exalted wisdom. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Brethren, keep this in mind. The next time you have to sit through and listen to a worldly person pontificate their ideas to you and tell you that you're supposed to think and believe exactly the way that they think and believe, just remember that God has the prerogative of vengeance that we do not. And that there's a day that's coming in which he will, in fact, demonstrate the foolishness of man. He's doing it now through the gospel, but there's even going to be an, an ultimate moment in judgment when all the foolishness of the world will be crushed by the supremacy of God and his wisdom and his wisdom displayed in the cross. Paul continues. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The world through its wisdom, it can't come to God. Take the best philosophy, the most well-established religion ever established by human imagination. It's just a tower of Babel, worthy of condemnation and falling short of the true eternal heavens. Brethren, the thing we have to keep in mind, and I think this is such a crucial principle, and this can leak into the church so quickly if we don't understand this, our thoughts, our ideas are no match for God and his wisdom. We have to mortify the injection of our own thoughts and ideas into the wisdom of God. This is why Paul says we ought not, or we literally we must not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed in the art and thought of man, or by the art and thought of man. The art and thought of man, at its best, can only construct that which falls short truly of God in his glory. And so it is the case that God demonstrates his supremacy and power over the human heart, the human mind, 
fact, remember in Genesis chapter 6, have you ever noticed that text when the Lord condemned humanity and judged it through the deluge? That it's not through the depiction specifically of their actions, but it was the wickedness of man that he saw where he says that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God sees the heart. He sees the mind. He sees the intentions, everything. And he judges righteously in view of everything that's there. Brethren, let me conclude with a few thoughts, exhortations, and implications of what we're seeing here. Number one, be on guard against grounding your evangelism in the reactions of others. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and you see them react in a way that's alarming, disturbing, they're angry, they're, they mock you? You can't let any of that affect you. You must pierce through that knowing that you are sufficiently and powerfully armed with the word of God and their response should govern nothing. Now, let me say this. If you're saying things that are offensive or you're being offensive in your own person and the manner in which you're speaking, that's a different issue. But if their sense of offense is on the basis of the word of God, there's nothing you can do about that. That's what I'm saying. We need to be bold when sharing the word because, again, we bear this sword with the authority of King Jesus. It's him that we represent, not ourselves. So don't get into the, the mode of feeling a personal offense to the point where you end up being silenced or changing what you might say. That's a great temptation, but we must resist it. How many people have you ever spoken to and you, they'll, they'll, they'll say to you things like, well, you don't know my truth. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but if, let me just explain to you my truth, my experiences, my thoughts, my ideas, my philosophy about what the world is like and everything. By the way, that's what I did. I mean, I know the drill. I, I, I did it. All that's irrelevant. I mean, we can give ear to that. We can talk to the individual, and we should, at least to know something about who they are. But at the end of the day, we have to come back to the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. It is that living and active two-edged sword that is sharp, and it pierces beyond the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That is powerful. There's nothing more powerful on this planet than the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, when I first heard the Word of God being preached I was literally, almost literally being dragged to a Bible study where they were preaching through, a man was preaching through John chapter 1. I would go home at night and have nightmares. I had heard the Bible before a little bit, but I don't remember going home and waking up in a cold sweat knowing that I was going to hell. 
What happened? I was hearing the word. And God was opening the, the heart, the ears, and the eyes to receive the word. And the spirit of God was applying the word and bringing conviction as only he can do. This is the work of God, and it is indeed powerful. And that's why we must rely upon what he has given to us and nothing else. Secondly, as we share, brethren, as we speak to others, we must remember to be compassionate. We must remember that we ourselves were foolish, and one, at one point in time, we marched about in the darkness of our own sin. As Paul says, For we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Paul says we were there too. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Lastly, Much of our growth and sanctification takes place in the midst of trials. Brethren, it is a principle. We see it in various portions of Scripture, but you, when you go to texts like Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews reminds that persecuted people that God has his divine purposes in sending them through the trials that they were experiencing that the trials that they were facing were ordained from a, by a loving God and Father whose design it is, is that we would become partakers of his holiness. God uses trials, and as we go through trials, what he enjoins us to do is to take up his armor and fight. Not flee, but fight. Not run away from the trial, but go through it knowing that there is a purpose and design in it all. Lord's still teaching me how to rejoice, as James tells us, when we encounter various trials. That is so contrary to human flesh, it's even hard to describe, but this is what we're called to do. To look to our trials, to look to our God ultimately, and see and know and understand that he calls us to walk in love and follow our Savior, no matter where he leads us. Because, and I'll use this expression, not to make casual the idea, but, but it is all good. God is good, and all that he ordains is good. And he's teaching us about that. With that in mind, listen to these words, and this is the hymn that we'll be concluding with here. More love to thee. Look with me at verse 3. You know, I've had conversations with folks about why take the time to talk about a hymn before we sing it. Um, I've had a lot of expressions of gratitude for our doing that. But I, I want to make sure you understand something. 
I do it somewhat selfishly because I can't tell you how many times I've sung a hymn and I just race through the words. I don't really think about it like I should. That's easy to do. I want us to think about what we're about to sing and I want to challenge you to, th- to consider these words. Verse 3. Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. Now here's the conditional adverbial clause. When, when they can sing with me more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. How are trials sweet messengers? They're sweet messengers when they can sing with me more love to thee. When we resist trials and we kick against the goads that God supplies, we don't experience the blessed sanctification that God has ordained, but when we do embrace what God has ordained for us and even embrace the trials that we face, knowing that they come from our loving Heavenly Father, then we can say, then we can say that our trials sing with us more love to thee. Now, brethren, I don't know if you all know this hymn. I'm going to go ahead and ask uh, Karen to go ahead and play through it again. You played through it earlier, but we can just play through it once through and then then we'll sing it. And let's stand together.
thy latest breath, whisper thy praise. This be the parting cry my heart shall raise. This still its prayer shall be more love, O Christ, to Thee, more love to Precious Heavenly Father, you've poured out your love in our hearts so that we would seek you in love each and every day, that Christ would be our first love, that it would be our daily joy to hear his voice and follow him. Oh, Father, help us to have strength where we must confess that we are frail creatures. Without your strength, we cannot do anything. We do live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And the contemplation of this could prove to be too much if we were to forget that you have supplied us with all that we need for this battle. Help us to remember that our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ, is the victor. And he has won the victory over sin and death. So, Father, may we follow Christ and battle in his authority and battle by means of the word that has been given to us, entrusted to us, the very sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. May we rely and depend upon you for your strength and direction in all things each and every day. And may it all be for your glory. For we ask it and pray it. In the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it may be paid back to him Again, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a blessed day, brother.